the most important moment for me was not as a rheumatologist, not as an internist, but it was as a person, going back to seeing end of uh, life um, happen and, and patients dying in front of us. And I thought it was cruel for the person who was dying, but it was also cruel for the families who were at the other end of the line and who couldn't see their parents. That was Dr. Marie Hudson, a rheumatologist at the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal and a senior scientist at the Lady Davis Institute for Medical Research. We are also joined by Dr. Sabrina Falavalida, also a rheumatologist at the Jewish General and the site director for the rheumatology program. They are our guests on this special COVID-19 series of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Ennis. In this special series, we're taking a close-up look at the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the field of rheumatology and all of us who practice it. Today, we talked to two rheumatologists in Montreal, the epicenter of the pandemic in Canada. I'll ask them about their experiences as they set aside their practices to help on the COVID wards at the Jewish General Hospital. Marie and Sabrina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So maybe we'll start, Mary, with you. Uh, when did you find out you were going to be working on the COVID wards, and what was your reaction to that? <laughs> you want the details? Yeah. <laughs> so so um, I think everything locked down in Quebec uh, around March 16th or so. And about that time, we found out that the Jewish General Hospital was going to be one of the designated centers to receive the, uh, the, the patients with uh, coronavirus. And rapidly after that, we uh, we received an invitation from uh, one of the uh, uh, physicians who will who is currently leading uh, the battle, if you want, asking for volunteers. And so I think we all got that invitation, and we all mulled it over in our minds for a little while. And then it turns out that one of my younger colleagues, Geneviève Giget, was actually invited to to uh, uh, attend on the ward. And then I thought, what, what do you mean? You know, is there ageism here? That's not fair. How come she's going before me? So I quickly emailed back and I said, you know, this is not fair. I want to go. And so I was taken up on my word right then and there. And so I started attending on the word already in the second, just uh, in the second week when we were started to go up, um, you know, and start to receive these patients. And so, so, and I was actually, um, you know, uh, at the same time honored to do it and at the same time terrified to do it. But uh, I think with time, and I am sure Sabrina will tell you as well, we've come to uh, realize that we're very well supported, uh, we're very well protected, and, and it's part of our job, and we've just come to accept it right now as part of our job description. So you are, you are a very enthusiastic uh, volunteer right off the bat. Competitive. Um, <laughs> and Sabrina, how about you? So I have to say, I had a similar experience. Uh, when we received that paper volunteering, however, I was really nervous about being, you know, the attending on a award, because that's not something I had done in many, many years. And so I remember writing on the paper, you know, I, I'm happy to help, but can I be a resident? Can I not be a ward? <laughs> can I not be the attending staff, the primary attending? Um, and so I, I got a call when they opened up the second COVID ward, um, and, I, and they decided to open it on Wednesday for Thursday. And so I got a call Wednesday night saying, we're going to take you up on that offer to be a resident. You can be the second attending <laughs> on this COVID ward. So I, I had less than 12 hours to get ready to do it. Um, and I think that that was a good thing because because if I had had more time to think about it, I might not have, <laughs> I might have been more nervous. But uh, but as Marie said, it was a very, um, we were very well supported and um, 
I was working with uh, with one of my pulmonary colleagues and and we had a resident with us and there was really no hierarchy. Everybody was the similar in a, at a similar level and we were all just trying to get through it and get through our nerves. Um, you know, that was that was really it. Wow. So you, you both jumped in right away, uh, right into the deep mm-hmm. end. Um, as rheumatologists, uh, maybe we'll start with Sabrina. Did you feel well equipped to care for COVID patients? So, you know, the way our hospital is set up is that we were rounding in a very ICU way where you have to keep track of the numbers and make decisions about numbers and things like that, which is not my strength as a rheumatologist. I like to, you know, speak to my patients and, you know, a lot of what we do is clinical gestalt and not number generated. So I I did have difficulty with that, uh, but I did realize pretty quickly that my strengths could be used even on a COVID ward in that, you know, I'm good at speaking to families. And so I would call all the families, which is not something necessarily my other family and my other colleagues wanted to do or or had the time to do. Um, I'm also a really good observer of things like most rheumatologists are. And so I could always pick the patient that was going to go to the ICU by the end of the day in the morning because I could tell that they look different from the day before. Um, and so and so while, you know, the classic ICU rounding way of things and while the blood pressure management and the recent diabetes guidelines is really not my thing, um, I was I did feel I was useful. I, we'd also prescribe we also prescribe a lot of the drugs we were using for those patients like Plaquenil. And so, you know, I was often in a position of sort of talking about side effects of Plaquenil with the pharmacist. And Mary, any any comment on that too? As being a rheumatologist on a COVID ward, what was that like for you? Yeah, so most of the time I did not feel like a rheumatologist. I felt like an internist and I felt like an out-of-date internist. And just like Sabrina, I was so lucky to be paired with a fabulous respirologist who uh, is really up-to-date on a lot of things. And, you know, for example, I'm sure you've heard uh, that there's lots of uh, coagulopathies and thrombosis associated with uh, uh, COVID infections. And, you know, I'm out-of-date in terms of, of, of doing that. But she was able to manage those more, you know, technical aspects of of management. And just like Sabrina, my strengths were more spending time with families. Uh, and, and so we shared, you know, and we each had our, our strengths and so on. As a rheumatologist, I did have a few, uh, you know, I was always excited when I, I admitted a few patients with rheumatoid arthritis. I felt, oh, finally, I, you know, I feel comfortable here. And there was this one particular patient who came in with an acute knee. And so obviously, the patient had to be admitted. Uh, and they said, well, let's send her, her to a ward where there's a rheumatologist. And, uh, and and then I was all excited. Oh, finally, I get to aspirate the knee. I'm going to inject the knee and so on. It looked like classic CPPD and so on. But then, you know, there's, there are things that we're, we were all learning on the job. And just as I'm going to my office to get my needles and to get my, my uh, uh, cortisone to do my injection and so on, I run across the chief of infectious disease who says, just a minute, you know, think about this carefully. We don't know, but the, it could be that the synovial fluid is, is infected with vi- uh, virus. And if you bring the synovial fluid back to your clinic, to your microscope, you're going to contaminate uh, your your space and so on. So there are things as a rheumatologist that COVID infection uh, is uh, forcing us to to learn and discover. Interesting. Uh, what ended up happening with uh, the synovial fluid is that is that a place that you can culture COVID? Uh, so culturing it uh, is possible. I didn't send it for culture because in the end, uh, he said, no, he said, if you think that this is a septic knee, 
you must, you know, and culturing is not a problem. You can send that to the micro lab, but it's more the looking at the fluid under the microscope that would require, you know, a special cleaning procedures for the microscope. So in the end, it looked like such classic CPPD. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to treat her empirically, uh, which I did. And by the next day, as you know, she was walking around and she was uh, much better. So I did not have to aspirate it. But, but I thought that it was important information then to share with my other colleagues because we are all being called down to the... Uh, emerge and, and to see some of these patients. So we have to integrate some of these new realities into our practice. It's interesting that you mentioned like the treating people empirically, you know, that is kind of the new Zoom, Skype, Doxy, dealing with patients by telehealth. Sometimes it, it, it doesn't make sense to bring them into clinic. That would be kind of mm-hmm. not necessarily appropriate for COVID times. So that means we are kind of treating people empirically without all the data. Sounds like you have to mm-hmm. do that on the ward as well. Um, Sabrina, can you tell us about some moments or experiences that stood out during your time on the ward? Yeah. um, uh, So one in particular, I I was transferring my first COVID patient to the intensive care unit. And so so this was actually a patient that was known to our service who had deteriorated and ended up going to the intensive care unit. And I remember when the resident came up to see me and he said, wait a minute, what are you doing here? You know, this is, you're a rheumatologist. What are you doing on the COVID ward, and I, I said, "Well, you know, everybody has to help." And um, and and in the end, you know, he probably did a very thorough assessment of the patient to make sure that he was convinced that the patient needed to go to the intensive care unit, and, and he did, and he ended up being intubated. But I, it was really just that that struck me that that everybody was sort of surprised that as rheumatologists, we were pitching in and 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 helping. Um, and I think that that's something that has changed. I think now it's more expected because since my time, you know. Surgeons have gone on COVID wards, ophthalmologists, um, you know, every specialist really, really pitched in to help. It wasn't just the internal medicine Mm -hmm. specialties. Um, I'm curious how your time on the COVID wards has affected your clinics and and your work outside of the ward. So, Marie, how did the pandemic affect your clinical research? Because you participate in quite a bit. Mm, Okay, so that's another um, big part of my uh, regular job is my research. And it has really, really impacted my research a whole lot. We were told very early on by mid-March that all non-essential, and by uh, essential they meant life-saving research, so all non-essential research had to stop altogether, 100%. And a lot of my research is observational research, it's a non-interventional research, and so on. So uh, all the cohorts that we're uh, involved with, the scleroderma cohort, the myositis cohort, CANRIO, and so on, uh, all of that had to come to a grinding halt. And that has been a heartbreak, because uh, it's not clear to me how that will really affect the integrity of the data when we are allowed to to resume. There's going to be this sort of black hole, all this missing data that's going to have to be handled. And and I'm not quite sure how we're going to do that. I I do know a very good statistician, and he's going to be busy trying to help me figure out my missing data issues. So it's been a, a big uh, impact. Uh, The other uh, type of research that I do, I I am involved in clinical trials. Luckily, we we did not have any active patients at that time in any clinical trials, but we had a few clinical trials that were just about to start where we had already identified patients. We were about to start recruitment. And I'm sure you uh, must be aware that to get to that point, it usually takes about 
you know, nine months, you know, to get through contracts and ethics and everything. And now to see all of that effort sort of be suspended like that is really, um, you know, disconcerting. But on the other hand, I say it is what it is. It's a sign of the times and the the consequences are, are very serious for the patients. You don't want them to come in unnecessarily. And so the, the real purpose for suspending this research is to protect the patients. And, and that is, you know, really uh, the, the most important thing here. For clinical trials uh, in particular, you were mentioning like the integrity of the data. Uh, can clinical trials still produce reasonable results if you have to, you know, stop the clinical trial completely um, midway? Right. So, you know, that's a fantastic question. I don't know that we have the answers uh, to all of those questions yet, but I think that those those questions are about to be asked and we're going to need guidance from some of the regulatory agencies, the FDA, Health Canada, you know, what, how are they going to allow for deviations in protocols and so on? I don't think we know yet. Wow, that's a, a major challenge. Um, it is. Sabrina, how did the pandemic affect your role as the program, the, the site program director? So, so I have a role both in UGME and PGME. So I'll talk about the rheumatology residents first. I mean, in our case, we suddenly stopped having clinic and our consult service suddenly stopped being busy. Um, so, you know, it, it did affect things. We also had two pregnant residents uh, who were unable to see COVID positive patients and even patients in person rule out COVID patients at one point. Um, and so it was a bit of a transition in that, you know, we shifted from in-person live teaching to virtual, you know, assessment uh, and having residents involved in that was very difficult, first of all, because initially uh, the Quebec Guide for Telemedicine did not really involve residents in that a teacher wasn't paid unless they were sitting with the resident during the visit or did the visit afterwards. So, so there was an issue with remuneration, which has now been sorted out. Um, but also, you know, telemedicine is new for us. So to teach it is also a really new thing. And so, so we're struggling uh, with that a little bit. And then the other big issue was that every time we would have residents, um, there was a very good chance that they would be redeployed. Uh, and so in the last couple of months, we've had redeployment of our residents, you know, 50% of their rotation, uh, which, which I think uh, was also challenging, especially in terms of weekend coverage for the service, the consult service. My other role in UGME was, for me at least, a much bigger, <laughs> a bigger, bigger problem because I take care of the preclinical part of the curriculum. And this is a part of the curriculum where students actually go into the clinical environment. And so we made the decision in March to pull both the third and second year medical students out of the clinical environment, as did most schools across Canada, in fact, all schools across Canada. And so we've had this three-month essential freeze of their training. Um, and so managing that has been very challenging. And, and now that we're resuming, McGill has still not allowed in-person teaching. So we're now struggling with things like simulation and how to teach both medical students and residents virtually. And, and I know that uh, both in UGME and PGME, that, that's going to be an ongoing issue for us that I, I don't know that other programs across the country will face. Do you think that there are going to be long-term fallouts from this, maybe for the medical students, residents, but also for the, the program, the way that you run things? Well, I think that there are going to be long-term, I think telemedicine is here to stay. And so I think that we're going to have to do a better job of integrating that into our training. I think that it's going to be a really long time before we'll be able to do in-person teaching and in-person simulation. Um, although although we, are, we are planning to go back to in-person simulation, but true in-person simulation. And so we'll have to get creative. Um, that said, I think that 
we will adapt and I think that students will catch up. Uh, but I do, I do think that there will be a catch up period for both the residents and the students. I mean, the other big thing is that the Royal College exams were canceled for the R3s, right? So our incoming fellows are now in the same position as the other fellows were. And, and so that, that too is going to impact their training because they're not only kind of having this telemedicine training in the time of COVID, they're also struggling with this internal medicine exam, which, you know, in the past, before the exam, when the exam was in R4, took six months of their training. And so that worries me, uh, actually, that shortening, I mean, you know, as a rheumatologist, you really need to see people to get good. Uh, and I, in fact, I, I think I only got good at seeing people when I actually started practicing, but but seeing as many patients as possible during your residency, it really does help. And uh, and so this lack of seeing people, even, even just by telemedicine, is going to impact things, I think. Uh, although I do think that we have some really smart trainees that will catch up. Mary, do you think telemedicine is going to be part of the new research environment? Absolutely. I think that we're, just as Sabrina said, we're going to have to be uh, creative. And I think that we're going to have to, um, you know, integrate uh, telehealth into research, and if we're, you know, hoping to to con- carry on our activities. Marie, are there any other moments or experiences that you'd like to share? Yeah, so I think that the the most um, important moment for me was not as a rheumatologist, not as an internist, but it was as a person, going back to seeing end of uh, life. Um, happen and and patients dying in front of us. Uh, What really was hard, I thought it was cruel to see people die on their own. And I was so thankful for the uh, nursing staff. We had the most amazing nursing staff who tried to, um, you know, help uh, in these moments. And I thought it was cruel for the person who was dying, but it was also cruel for the families who were at the other end of the line and who couldn't see their parents. And that's where then I think that there are some research opportunities. And we recently uh, had one of our colleagues, Inez Colmenia, who was funded to try to see if uh, uh, using um, iPad technology and so on uh, can ease some of the suffering at the end of uh, life in COVID times. So where there's hardship, there's opportunity. And so that's, uh, you know, some some important takeaways as well as uh, spending time on the wards. Thanks for sharing that. Well, thank you both so much for your service. Thank you so much for uh, chatting with me and uh, stay safe and good luck on your next week on the ward. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Marie Hudson and Dr. Sabrina Falavalida from the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. That's it for this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. We are produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, Kevin Bagenoth, and Aaron Fontwell. We'd like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. We are supported by funding from Scotiabank, the Canadian Medical Association, and MD Financial Management. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.